Hello and welcome to Business Without My name is Dominic Frisby and Ori Clark is both a legal and an accountancy firm. And one of its partners is Andrew Ori, usually my co-host. And Andy made the observation that the firm has so many interesting clients doing such interesting and wonderful things. And he wanted to share those wonderful things with a wider audience. And the result is this podcast. Now, usually Andy is my co-host, but today we have a new co-host who is also one of the partners in the firm and also a member of the Ori family. He's Andy's big sister, Juliet. Juliet, hello. Hello, Dom. Thank you very much. That's okay. And who, who have we got on the, on the show today? So, Dom, I have brought along my dear and oldest client, Robert White. Robert, welcome to the show. Welcome to you. Who is this Robert White that stands in front of me. <laughs> so Robert is the COO of Western Europe at IDC, as well as the CFO for EMEA for IDC. What does it stand for? International Data Corporation. Data? Data Corporation. We like Data Corporation better. Um, so Robert, perhaps we might begin with talking about your background. Yes, so I was born in a small village called Liverpool in the northwest of England. Educated there, of course. Um, Both my parents were teachers. Uh, My mother left the workplace uh, while she raised the family. So uh, eventually, after going to school, uh, I went to York University, which is another city in the the north of England. So very much a northern boy. Uh, Studied economics at uh, York University and uh, eventually started uh, my working career um, in the sort of uh, early 1980 to mid-1980 timeframe. And eventually, uh, in 1985, uh, decided to go into the accounting profession. So at that time, I was working, uh, attended accounting uh, uh, classes, night school, uh, whilst working, so it was quite hard. Moved around a few positions and eventually ended up at uh, Bull Honeywell Information Systems. So the French-American uh, computer company, uh, by now it was in the late 1980s. And uh, at some point, just before the end of that decade, uh, I was invited to move down to the soft south. So this is my first experience of uh, being in London, uh, working for Bull. And uh, in 1992, I took up uh, a position as UK financial controller at IDC United Kingdom Limited. At the time, we were based in Chiswick and uh, we're now based in Ealing and, and have been for the last five years. So nearly 29 years later, I've been through a variety of positions. And uh, as you just said, I'm currently the uh, chief operating officer for IDC in Western Europe, as well as the CFO for the EMEA region, which takes in the Middle East and Africa. Wow, Robert, that's quite an achievement. I always feel that that you're pretty amazing to have stayed as long and been consistent. Um, Can you tell us and explain to us what IDC does? Yes, so IDC, or International Data Corporation, as you put it, um, is the world's uh, premier um, company in providing market intelligence advisory services to the tech industry. So that's both to the vendors of technology, so from very big corporations such as IBM, Microsoft, SAP, right down to the newer 
emerging vendors who, of course, uh, are known as the disruptors in the market now. So the emergence of companies like Amazon Web Services, uh, like Facebook, like LinkedIn, etc., are all clients of IDC to some level. So we principally provide uh, data to uh, to those kinds of companies, and we also provide information and advice and data to uh, the users of technology. So the big corporations, principally, who of course have millions of uh, dollars or millions of pounds tied up in their IT systems and their IT platforms. So what I always find, so I, I said data because I know that you originally began as an American company. And I yep. think it's really fascinating if you explain how IDC began, because to me, it began as a tiny business and is now a global operation. Yeah. Yeah, so so you know it as a tiny business in the UK because because of course that's that's uh, um, where you and I met. Our first contact, of course, was when I was uh, in the finance department department of IDC UK. We were much smaller than we are today, and indeed globally. Uh, in fact, the history of uh, international data corporation IDC uh, is an interesting one. So it was founded in 1964 by a gentleman who had graduated from uh, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. And he started with a very small amount of capital at that time, uh, having come out and graduated from university. And he decided to get into this uh, advisory business by himself. And uh, initially, he went around the corporations of the big mainframe uh, excuse me, providers who were based on the east coast of the United States, so IBM, NEC. And he went to their management and said, look, if I spend a year going around the United States and find out how big your installed base actually is across the country and come back with some comparatives around how you compare with your competitor, with the next competitor and so forth. Would you be interested in investing in that uh, piece of research? So he quoted a price, which uh, the, the, uh, the person on the other side of the desk representing the potential customer said, that's way too low. That information is worth a lot more than you're asking for. And sure enough, he came back a year later, reported back with the results. And from that, he started to build a business, uh, which, um, as we know, is now called uh, IDC. And um, he, at the same time, um, wanted to get into the media business. And um, he realized that in the technology industry, there was a high demand for IT journals, for information with editorial and advice within those magazines. So he set up our sister organization, IDG Communications, as it's known now, around about the uh, late, late 1960s. And uh, of course, that took off at a much higher rate. The growth path was uh, exponential. It became a much bigger business than uh, the market research business or IDC's business. And both organizations, both the media business and the market research business, he exported. He made it international, which is where the international piece, of course, comes from. So um, around about 90, well, in fact, in 1969, uh, IDC in the UK was set up as the first overseas foreign uh, subsidiary of uh, the corporation. And from there, he moved through Europe into Asia, of course. And he was always a pioneer, a great entrepreneur. And um, he wanted to move into China before the relaxation, even in 1985, in terms of the switch to sort of 
capitalism, if you like, the, the birth of the capitalist model in China. And uh, he was in there very early on. Um, and likewise in Eastern Europe, around the time of the um, the collapse of the, the Berlin Wall, at the time of the collapse of the um, Iron Curtain, he was getting into markets such as uh, at the time Czechoslovakia, now Czech Republic, of course, and uh, setting up offices internationally across the globe and, and placing a flag in each country at the same time, building a, a very extensive footprint in terms of the um, the size of the business and also in terms of the geographic coverage of the corporation as well. An amazing man, like as you describe him, a pioneer. Like I know, throughout having acted for you for over twenty years, or the business, like to to watch and see how it has evolved, and obviously from its original, you now I know get into other things. I always think of IDG as the original. Like people would know PC World, mm, you know the magazines, indeed. all those things that now might not exist, but at that time were massive. Um, and he has totally revolutionized things, being the first to get in and to build globally. Always very much ahead of the curve. So great visionary and sadly missed, of course, because um, sadly in the, on the 50th anniversary almost of uh, IDC, uh, he passed away. So uh, 2014, um, a few days, in fact, before what would have been the 50th uh, anniversary party, he sadly passed away and uh, is, is sadly missed by all who were in the corporation at that time and who remember him. Yeah, and I, I've always respected the fact that IDC is such an amazing organisation. You have phenomenal talent within it, wonderful management that are very honourable. Like I have always enjoyed acting for you guys and, and working with you. And I think you've instilled what he began and, and what has continued to happen. But what I have found fascinating is the fact that you have evolved and, and to me, IDC has been amazing at its evolution. Um, so having begun as, as data, I know you still do the data. Yes. Um, and still the reporting. But you then got into, obviously, the media side in IDG. And then I know you got into more events. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, indeed. And uh, the events play a, a significant role. Uh, uh, part of the of the European business. So we started with the first events in Europe around the time I joined IDC in 1992. So we used to run uh, an annual event um, initially in uh, Venice, if I remember correctly. And indeed, uh, that, that was a very big event. It attracted uh, a large number of sponsors and partners, it a large number of attendees. like one of the first tech events. Yeah, it probably was because, of course, now uh, you, you just open any magazine and you'll find events uh, uh, on offer across the world. Uh, if you don't read about them, they're thrust at you, of course, in terms of emails that uh, come down the, the track. So hugely competitive business now. Um, and I think IDC has succeeded in that business, uh, particularly in uh, in Europe and in our Asia-Pacific operation, where we have a strong uh, presence with events also, because, of course, we are an advisory service. Uh, we can leverage on the human assets that we have in terms of producing and, and providing content at these events, which is very important and often differentiates us from an event agency company that comes in and just puts on an event to raise money and necessarily may necessarily not have kind of the same level of, um, of thought leadership and advice on showing the event itself. Do you still put them on now? 
Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. So we're moving in, into current uh, times. Interesting question. So, yeah, um, all our events, pretty much, not all, but pretty much 95% probably of, of our events were physical events, so face-to-face meetings um, through to about March this year when the world changed, of course, um, at least temporarily changed. Um, so what we saw in March was a cancellation of any events that were in the timetable or the schedule for, for the coming weeks and coming months. So they were initially postponed till the later part of this year on the belief that the world would return to normality quicker than it actually has, of course, and the, the, the virus and the pandemic have been you know, a difficult period for all businesses. What, what percentage of your business was events, you know, in February last year? Yeah, so 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 on the European uh, level, in terms of the sort of European business, about 25% of our total business, uh, total revenues were generated by physical events. Okay. Uh, and... How many countries are you operating in around the world? hundred and something you said? Yeah, so we're just under a hundred. So we have presence in about 90 offices okay. currently. So we had this massive shock in yeah. March where our customers started uh, pulling out of events, which you know, we weren't allowed to deliver, of course, given the restrictions in most countries at the time, which continued for many months and still are with us today in terms of you know large gatherings of people. So... Um, we were left with a very bleak outlook for the remainder of the year. And we thought this is a significant piece of our business. Roughly 25% of our business in Europe uh, looks as though it's going to go down the pan as far as this year is concerned. So we switched to um, producing after going through a business planning process, we switched to digital events. So many of the events that we had scheduled for this year have converted into digital events and successfully converted into digital events. Um, lower price points in terms of what you can sell as a sponsorship for a digital event, which only lasts for a few hours compared with a one-day or a two-day event uh, that would uh, happen face-to-face. But nonetheless, the margins, of course, in terms of the profit that you take away from Mm -hmm. an event is much higher than a a physical event, where, of course, you've got to pay out for hotel hire, for food and beverage hire, etc. So we recovered the situation over the second half of the year very dramatically. And um, the point that I was making to to Juliet Juliet earlier, that um, many of our customers have continued to spend and are prepared to spend. And the reason we do events, of course, is not just to showcase our thought leadership, but also, of course, to provide a lead generation uh, service to our customers. So given the strength of the databases that we have, a lot of end users, so CIOs, CEOs, uh, chief digital officers on our databases, we're able to pull in uh, a strong and large audience, strong in the sense of senior executives, whom the partners are keen to 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 make contact with and continue a conversation around positioning this, their services uh, after the event. Now, any form of live entertainment, you know, it might be football, it might be conferences, it might be comedy, it might be theatre, it might be music. They've all had to sort of dramatically shift over the course of this year. And these sort of, you know, virtual gigs, let's call them, have have become the new normal. Do you think we'll ever go back to what we were in February or are these sort of virtual gigs, have they become normalised? What's the what's the future there? That's the burning question. Um, as we go into 2021 in terms of trying to plan our business, do we plan on 
um, exclusively digital events for the next 12 months or will physical events, a demand for physical events return at least? And it is a hard question to call. And I think um, the market is kind of split on this. So, so the customers see the advantage of um, virtual events in that they don't have to travel, um, they're shorter in length in terms of uh, what, what they see as the final product. Uh, it suits the users, the, the people who would normally attend a physical event because they can just sit in their office for a few hours, watch it on a computer screen. That's one school. The other school, of course, are those who are itching to get back and start those human interactions that take place, of course, uh, during the course of a one or a two day event. So not only do I act for IDC, I act for a number of events companies, right? Thankfully, you know, virtual events have been amazing and have saved many people. I think without doubt they're here to stay, but I think there will be a mix because I think the, the most phenomenal thing or the question I cannot answer and everyone has asked me at these virtual events, one, it's hilarious. Like you go into these rooms, no one knows the etiquette of online networking, right? And so no one knows when to speak, not speak, who's speaking. But a new etiquette is emerging. People are sort of creating an etiquette, are they not? Do you think? I don't know. I don't, don't go to I, any. Okay, so <laughs> so no, because there's no rules. So you go to a networking event, you know you're walking in a room, you you know kind of, some people love working a room, some people don't. The, the thing that has come out of the virtual events, so people are relieved there have been virtual events this year because it has enabled people to do some of their work, right? And enabled streams of business or revenue or whatever. But what they haven't been able to do is pick up anything anecdotally, meet anybody particularly, or innovate. So you go, you watch, but the chat at the bar, the bumping into someone in the loo, having a cigarette outside and meeting somebody, nobody knows. So lots of clients are asking me, you know, what's happening in those technology businesses? Because they meet online and people are, you know, restricted in what they can say. Whereas if you've had a few drinks at the bar, people might tell you what's really going on. So people are struggling with knowing what's going on, what is the future, having those discussions and innovating, really. So I think there will be a mix because I think lots of people do, like, you know, we're together now. People want to be together, right? We we miss, we are human animals. There's so much you can do online. And, and my personal belief is, yes, so some of those online events will, will carry on, but people are tired of them now. They want a mix. So I agree with Robert, you don't want to travel. Like, to me, it's amazing. You can just log on, watch something. It's done in an hour. Yeah, you I mean, this, this podcast until today, the last few episodes, we've been recording remotely from the comfort of our own home. And today I had to come into town <laughs> cursing <laughs> everything and anything. Because it's like I've been into the West End. We're not in the West End, but we're in Farringdon on the edge of the West End. I've been into the West End like three times in the last six months. Well, Dominic, know. I'm glad we've got you out. You've had your daily exercise <laughs> yeah, here. You came on your bicycle. I think that's quite important. Yeah. But what I'm describing 
is is I'm not moaning about coming in, but I'm what I what happened to me is there's going to be countless other people in the same boat. So the and, lost and, you know, time. The lost there's time. the lost. You know, you think of all somebody I know like did a a spreadsheet of you know he was an accountant who lived in Guildford and he did a spreadsheet of you know I think every day it took him an hour and fifteen minutes or something to come into town and he did a spreadsheet of all the time he spent commuting over his entire life and it came out at like nine years or something and and so you know so there is definitely a way and you can use that time valuably you can um you know it can be an important period to sort of come down from work and get ready for home life you know so it does serve a purpose but i suppose my point is that so many habits have become entrenched this year and we've all got a lot lazier in a funny kind of way instead of in terms of the the amount we're prepared to travel so you know, marketing. If people, if if the real live world is to come back, marketing people have got their hands full changing habits. I think. Um, I was uh, reading a book about future technologies by a chap called Alec Ross a few years ago, and he described data as the new real estate. Is that something that? the COO of International Data Corporation. I would absolutely agree with that. And uh, kind of another metaphor would be data is oil. So highly valued product, commodity uh, that serves a great purpose in terms of what it does. Um, And some others may even say that data is water in that it's absolutely essential for any organization, for any individual now. And you see the rise of these big companies, of course, uh, who accumulate masses of data around individuals, around corporations. Um, I'm thinking of the Googles of the world, of course. And, and it, is, it is absolutely vital importance in terms of, uh, in terms of the world. You know, in the, in the 2008 and 2012 US elections, Obama was praised for the way that he used the internet. And yet Donald Trump in 2016 basically used data better than Hillary Clinton did and was vilified for doing it. And that just might be because the people who vilified Trump like Obama and didn't like Trump, whatever. But one of the things that the that Republican team did in 2016, which I found really interesting, is that they learnt, and when you think about it, it makes total sense that people who drive an American car were more likely to vote for Donald Trump. And people who drove drove a foreign car, car were less likely. And so they looked for people who owned American cars in swing states who hadn't, uh, didn't have a clear voting record in the previous two general elections. So maybe sometimes they voted Republican, maybe sometimes they voted Democrat, or maybe sometimes they didn't vote at all. So those were the swing voters. The swing voters who within decide, the swing states. Within the swing states yeah. who decided the margins. And if they could find ones who owned American cars, then they would pillory them with Facebook ads which were, again, tailored according to the type of person that was. So, for example, if it was a young man, it would be a more aggressive ad. If it was a middle-aged woman, it might be more of a soft sell. Now, when you phrase it like I've just phrased it, to me, that you could say that is just a sensible, tactically astute thing to do if you're trying to win an election and the way that democracy works or modern representative democracy is it's decided at the margins in swing states Mm -hmm. and 
Or you can say, no, that is manipulative, it is evil, it is taking data and misusing data for purposes for which it wasn't intended. And you can, so do you see what I'm, do you see? Yeah, so, 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 so all of those are subjective views. If it's someone who's perceived as being a villain, in other words, Donald Trump, who's doing it, he's the pantomime villain at the time and has been for the last four years and, and uh, probably will be beyond um, this period in time as well. So um, it's entirely subjective, I guess, in terms of what the end result is or who's using the data. So if it's a very large corporation, then they become to an extent, an easier target than, say, somebody who's a smaller company, our size, who's trying to legitimately do something. So I'd like to believe this positive either for um, for, for an organization who's selling uh, technology or an organization who's buying technology. So and these are subject, subject, yeah. subjective uh, valuations in terms of it. But is GDPR killing what was a growing industry? I think it makes it more challenging. So it makes it more challenging, particularly around the events business. That's where we've noticed um, the biggest change. So we accumulate all these names that we um, collect during the course of our business. So a lot of these names will be from customer interactions, meeting people at events where, you know, you informally pick up somebody's business card. They therefore go onto the marketing database or the events database for being contacted in the future for invitations. So we were kind of doing this as any organization was uh, prior to um, 2018, I think it was, when the GDPR legislation came in. So there was no control and, you know, you could bombard uh, the people who were on your contact databases with invitations, with marketing information, mm -hmm. almost without impunity. So even if there hadn't been a real contact or a business connection, legitimate interest, if you like, between IDC and these people, we would still market them and you know, direct email them and so forth, telling them about an event that they should come to and so forth. So post-GDPR, of course, all of that changed in that we had to either have a very strong case for legitimate interest in that they're an active customer or a reasonable customer in terms of their uh, engagement with IDC. Um, or they uh, were on the database, perhaps weren't a, a, uh, a customer of IDC, but they were prepared to consent to have their data used by IDC. So it immediately, when we had to clean up the databases, you know, shrunk the size of the pool of, uh, of the number of people that we could contact for these events. Okay. You know, you've established how important data is. You know, it's water, it's oil, it's real estate, whichever analogy we want to use it's it's like a vital component of business uh in the years ahead i think advertising used to be i read a statistic the other day advertising used to be 50 percent data driven and 50 percent beholden to the creativity of the copywriter and so on now it's like over 90 percent data driven um but what is the future of of data, how much of, of is its importance going to grow and that's not just technologically but also you know, what's the future of regulation of, on data? Regulation, we're becoming more and more and more regulated. So I think, you know, data will become more more and more important. I totally agree with Robert, but I don't agree with the GDPR. Yeah, <laughs> but tech, I mean, what tends to happen with new technology is it's always ahead. The regulators are behind the new tech. Totally, you, can't, you can't legitimize. Totally or, behind, totally behind. So I do loads on fintech and, and yeah. Bitcoin and 
you know, they want to be regulated, but the regulators don't understand it. Law and accounting does not keep up with technology. It just can't. It doesn't. And and the fact that it's global and there are no borders. So, yeah. you know, this data and you... This the borderless you, world of tech. So, so technology has no borders, right? Anything is possible, right? But every country, and I'm spending my life having to reiterate to everybody, every country has its own law and accounting system. And however bloody dull that is, that's the truth. And, and they are ancient and they don't understand most of this stuff. So lots of our clients, like lots of our technology clients, most people do not understand what they do and the law hasn't caught up. So there are no definitions. I used, I used to work for a, for a, a, a privacy tech uh, I was CEO of a privacy tech um, investment company, which was listed in Canada. And my co-director used to moan about having to spend, you know, 50 grand on lawyers. And he said, all that 50 grand is, is me educating lawyers about on Bitcoin. what you do. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and so we're paying them in order to teach them. So we have, we have decided, like I educate myself all the time for that very reason that clients, they shouldn't have to pay for me to understand, but the regulators won't ever that won't ever be ahead of the game when, it's impossible. When, when, it's impossible law will never be ahead of the game on it right and data is fundamentally important it is global you will never have a global policy on it every country will have its own so i guess my only fear about it is the countries that will use it to their advantage and others that, you know, here we are based, you know, on common law, you know, we develop through case law and to me that's the greatest way. What are you most excited about, Robert, in the, in the future of your business? What, what, what's, what, what's going to be really good in the next five years or so? Yeah, so, so I think the continued acceleration of change in the tech market. So I think in terms of IDC's positioning as you know, a thought leader, if you like, in terms of trying to discern what the trends will be over the next five years and the speed at which uh, these changes and disruptions happen in the tech market, I think that's what makes it exciting. Give us a trend that we can expect. Um, more working from home, I yeah. think, is one, uh, one, one thing. Future of work uh, is a very big topic for IDC at the moment. More freelancers? I suspect so, yeah. Um, I suspect that we'll see change in terms of the profile of the workforce and um, what you were talking earlier about the, uh, the Black Death in relation to the serfs. That was before the podcast started, Yeah, by the it's way. true. <laughs> it's true, yeah, yeah. We were talking about how the Black Death wiped out the serf class in Europe and the, because so many people died, it pushed up the cost of labour and serfs were able to buy their freedom effectively. But I think, yeah, added to that technology that we have now in terms of the ability, and I think this year has demonstrated that most businesses or the majority of businesses that weren't directly affected like retail, well, retail was... was this can still exist, of course, in an online form, but hospitality and travel, of course, have been hit very hard. But I think most other businesses have um, been able to serve their customers, been able to have their employees working in a productive way. So I think that will continue. Um, where it will end up, I'm, I'm not sure. Mm. I think it's very easy to say, yeah, well, we can, we, we've worked at home for the best part of a year. We can continue oh, to I do think that a mix for the next 20 here. years. I think a mix is here. So office That's... and flexibility, home. Good stuff. So, Robert, we're going to close with, with one last um, question, which is 
Um, if there was one thing in the world that you could change over the next five years, what would it be? What I think I would like to see is a reset of the apparatus, whether it's public or whether it's governmental or whether it's financial, the apparatus that was set up after the Second World War. So I sense and my, my feel, of course, that uh, we've seen a lot of disruption in the political field and in terms of the leadership of some um, major countries over the last few years, that I think these supranational, supranational institutions need to be, you know, reset in terms of how they serve the world and how they serve business and how they serve individuals. Because I think there's been a breakdown of trust. I think that's very clear. I think um, the contract of trust between populations and the public institutions for whatever reason, and we can talk probably for another five hours on this. Yeah, I think. So you're talking talk about the UN, the IMF, exactly. The, the yes, WHO, yeah, the European Union, even. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, I think these these institutions are under great stress. I often I always think about 1945. I think about Bretton Woods as well, the international monetary standard that was established then. Do you, does that need shaking up as well? Uh, yeah, I, I do think they, 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 they need a reset. And if you want to call them populist politicians who've, you know, taken these as targets in terms of, you know, their elite organisations run by people who are the elite, um, I think there needs to be some kind of reset and perhaps it needs another kind of Bretton Woods for the 21st century to define how they can better serve the economies of the world. Good stuff. Good answer. We like that. Very impressed. Well, no, I always knew I'd be impressed. So I know. Uh, on that, and he, you didn't, you didn't see that, dear listener. But when he was giving me that answer, Robert pulled his glasses down over his nose and eyeballed me, <laughs> <laughs> and I quivered. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, Robert, as we close, let, tell us how we can find out more about you and about uh, IDC. Go to the website idc.com. Uh, my LinkedIn profile is very easy to find. We're on Twitter. Uh, we're on all social media outlets. And uh, come along to one of our events, maybe. Good stuff. I'll be there. What's the next one? Uh, the next one won't be until January, but I will send you the schedule for 2021. Uh, which, okay. which country would you prefer to uh, UK. travel? UK only. Okay. okay. That's good. Tom, are you not getting on any planes? Oh, I'm not. I'll go. I'll go as soon as I can travel I think I will yeah Dom I feel we're going to have to go to these global events and shake them up and be a bit controversial (laughs) well thank you very much for listening everyone and uh, we'll be back with another show very soon and make sure you subscribe to the show so you catch the next episode of Business Without (laughs) until then from Andy Uri and me Dominic Frisbee it's cheerio cheerio